This is a download from the Wireless Theatre Company, The Ballad of C-33, by Francis Sargent and Knight Mantell. Oscar Fingal of Flatty Wells Wild. The crime of which you have been convicted is so bad that one has to put a stern restraint on oneself. To prevent oneself from describing in language which I would rather not use, the sentiments which must rise to the breast of every man of honour. This is the worst case I have ever tried. People who can do these things must be dead to all sense of shame. I shall, in these circumstances, be expected to pass the severest sentence that the law of England allows. In my judgment, it is wholly inadequate. The sentence of this court is that you, Wilde, be imprisoned and kept to hard labour for two years. The gods had given me almost everything. I had genius, a distinguished name, high social position, brilliancy, intellectual daring. I made art a philosophy and philosophy an art. I altered the minds of men and the colour of things. There was nothing I said or did that did not make people wonder. I treated art as a supreme reality and life as a mere mode of fiction. I awoke the imagination of my century so that it created myth and legend around me. I summed up all systems in a phrase and all existence in an epigram. But strange that I was not told that the brain can hold in one tiny ivory cell God's heaven and hell. Everything about my tragedy has been hideous, mean, repellent. Our very dress makes us grotesque, lacking in style. We are the zanies of sorrow. We're clowns whose hearts are broken. We are specially designed to appeal to the sense of humour. On November 20th, 1895, I was brought down here to Reading from London... From two o'clock until half-past two on that day, I had to stand on the centre platform of Clapham Junction in convict dress and handcuffed for the whole world to look at. Of all possible objects, I was the most grotesque. When people saw me, they laughed. Each train as it came up swelled the audience. Nothing could exceed their amusement. That was, of course, before they knew who I was. As soon as they'd been informed, they laughed still more. For half an hour I stood there in the grey November rain, surrounded by a jeering mob. For a year after that was done to me, I wept every day at the same hour and for the same space of time. This is not as tragic a thing as possibly it sounds to you. 
To those who are in prison, tears are a part of every day's experience. A day in prison on which one does not weep is a day on which one's heart is hard, not a day on which one's heart is happy. The Tower of Ivory is assailed by the foul thing. On the sand is my life spent. Her Majesty's Prison, Reading. The 9th of December, 1895, to Ada Levinson. Dear Sphinx, I write from my prison where your kind words have reached me and given me comfort in my loneliness. Not that I am really alone. A slim thing, golden-haired like an angel, stands always at my side. His presence overshadows me. He moves in the gloom like a white flower. To Lord Alfred Douglas, my dearest Bosie, your love has broad wings and is strong. Your love comes to me through my prison bars and comforts me. Yours is the light of all my hours. Oh, wait for me. Pain cannot last forever. Surely one day you and I will meet again, and though my face be a mask of grief and my body worn out by solitude, you and you alone will recognize the soul, which is more beautiful for having met yours, the soul of the artist who found his ideal in you, of the lover of beauty to whom you appeared as being flawless and perfect. Now I think of you as a golden-haired boy with Christ's own heart in you. I know now how much greater love is than anything else. You have taught me the divine secret of the world. I did but touch the honey of romance, and must I lose a soul's inheritance? To Her Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for the Home Department. For more than 13 dreadful months now, the petitioner has been subject to the fearful system of solitary confinement. Without suitable or sufficient books, so essential to any literary man, so vital for the preservation of mental balance, condemned to absolute silence, cut off from all knowledge of the external world. I have in prison almost in entirely lost the hearing of my right ear through an abscess which has caused the perforation of the drum. The medical officer has stated that he is unable to offer any assistance and that the hearing must go entirely. However, the prisoner has been assured by Sir William Dolby, the great orist, that with proper care there is no reason at all why he should lose his hearing. Though the abscess has been running now for the entire time of his imprisonment and his hearing getting worse every week, nothing has been done in the way of even an attempted cure. The ear has been syringed on three occasions, that is all. It is but natural that living in this silence, this solitude, this tomb for those who are not dead, the petitioner should day and night in every waking hour be tortured by the fear... Of absolute and 
entire insanity. And as one sees most fearful things in the crystal of a dream, yet each man kills the thing he loves. By each let this be heard, some do it with a bitter look, some with a flattering word. The coward does it with a kiss, the brave man with a sword. Some love too little, some too long, some sell and others buy. Some do the deed with many tears, for each man kills the thing he loves. Yet each man does not die. Dear Bosey, after long and fruitless waiting, I have determined to write to you myself, as much for your sake as mine, as I would not like to think I had passed two years of imprisonment without ever having received a single line from you, or any news or message even except such as gave me pain. You can understand, can you not, a little of what I'm suffering. Some paper, the Paul Mall Gazette, I think, describing the dress rehearsal of one of my plays, spoke of you following about like my shadow. The memory of our friendship is the shadow that walks with me here. That friendship, ill-fated and most lamentable, has ended in ruin and public infamy for me. Now and then it is a joy to have one's table red with wine and roses. But you had stripped all taste and temperance. You demanded without grace and received without thanks. The basis of character is willpower. And my willpower became absolutely subject to yours. Those incessant scenes that seemed to be almost physically necessary to you, in which your mind and body grew so distorted that you became a thing as terrible to look at as to listen to. Your mania for writing revolting and loathsome letters, your sudden fits of almost epileptic rage. These, I say, were the cause and origin of my fatal yielding to you in your daily increasing demands. You wore me out... It was the triumph of the smaller over the bigger nature. But I could not hate you. Every day I said to myself, I must keep love in my heart today. Else how shall I live through the day? It did not occur to me that you could have the supreme vice. Shallowness. News arrives. I am called out of the hospital ward where I am lying wretchedly ill to receive a special message from you through the governor of the prison. He reads me out a letter that you had addressed to him in which you stated that you proposed to publish an article on the case of Mr. Oscar Wilde and were anxious to obtain my permission to publish extracts and selections from the letters I'd written to you. The letters that should have been to you things sacred and secret beyond anything in the whole world. These were the letters you proposed to publish for the jaded and decadent to wonder at. Hate blinds people. You were not aware of that. Love can read the writing on the remotest star. But hate blinded that you could see no further than the narrow walled in and already lust-withered garden of your common desires. 
If one gives a child a toy too wonderful for its little mind or too beautiful for its half-awakened eyes, it breaks the toy if it is willful. If it is listless, it lets it fall and goes its way to its own companions. So it is with you. Having got hold of my life, you did not know what to do with it. You couldn't have known. It was too wonderful a thing to be in your grasp. You should have let it slip from your hands and gone back to your companions at their play. But unfortunately, you were willful. And so you broke it. The warders stripped him of his clothes and gave him to the flies and he of the swollen purple throat and the stark and staring eyes waits for the holy hands that took the thief to paradise and a broken and a contrite heart the Lord will not despise. Now, Bozy, I find hidden away in my nature something that tells me that nothing in the world is meaningless and suffering least of all. That something hidden away in my nature like a treasure in a field is humility. I want to get to the point where I shall be able to say quite simply and without affectation that the two great turning points in my life were when my father sent me to Oxford and when society sent me to prison. I am to be released if all goes well with me towards the end of May and I hope to go at once to some little seaside village abroad the sea, as Euripides says in one of his plays, washes away the stains and wounds of the world. Society, as we have constituted it, will have no place for me, has none to offer. But nature, whose sweet rains fall on unjust and just alike, will have clefts in the rocks where I may hide and secret valleys in whose silence I may weep. Undisturbed. She will hang the night with stars, so that I may walk abroad in darkness without stumbling, and send the wind over my footprints so that none may track me to my hurt. She will cleanse me in great waters, and with bitter herbs make me whole. What lies before me is my past. I've got to make myself look on that with different eyes. This I cannot do by denying it. It is only to be done by fully accepting it as an inevitable part of my life and character, by bowing my head to everything that I have suffered. How far I am from the true temper of soul, this letter, in its changing uncertain moods, its scorn and bitterness, its aspirations and its failure to realize those aspirations shows you quite clearly. But do not forget in what a terrible school I am sitting at my task. And incomplete, imperfect as I am, yet from me you may still have much to gain. You came to me to learn the pleasure of life and the pleasure of art. Perhaps I am chosen to teach you something more wonderful. The meaning of sorrow and its beauty. 
your affectionate friend, Oscar. To the Home Secretary. The petition of the above-named prisoner, number C-33, humbly showeth that his term of imprisonment will expire on the 19th of next May, four weeks from the date of this petition. He desires to go abroad quietly without attracting public attention. Mr. Frank Harris, the editor of the Saturday Review, has kindly invited the petitioner to go on a driving tour in the Pyrenees with him. He would, of course, proceed abroad with him, crossing the channel either in a yacht or by night, so as to avoid observation and annoyance. To Reginald Turner. My dear Reggie, regarding clothes, etc., hats I ought to have a lot of. I'd like a brown hat, oh, and a grey hat, soft felt seaside things. Who do, if there's time, get me 18 soft collars, or let's say two dozen. Also order me two dozen white silk handkerchiefs and a dozen with coloured borders. Also some neckties, um, some dark red with white spots, and some with whatever is being worn for summer wear. Also, I want two or three sets of mother-of-pearl studs. You know how difficult they are to get abroad. Also some nice French soap. Also some scent, the Canterbury wood violet I would like, and, and some eau de Lubin for the toilet, a large bottle. My hair has become quite white. There is a wonderful thing called Coco Maripocus to be got at 233 Regent Street, which is a wonderful hair tonic. The name alone seems worth the money, so please get me a large bottle. I want, for psychological reasons, to feel thoroughly cleansed of the stain and soil of prison life. So these things are, trivial as they may sound, really of great importance. Dear Reggie, on April the 7th, Frank Harris came to see me, told me that he had made a very large sum of money, some £23,000 in South Africa, and that he had come to put his cheque-book at my disposal. I was greatly touched, I admit, at his spontaneous and unsolicited kindness, and told him that if I were set free from money anxieties, I thought I could produce some good art. He said he had come for the purpose of doing so and would send me a cheque for £500 before my release. I now learn that he has sent a verbal message through you to say he is very sorry, but he cannot do it. Of course, nothing would induce me to go on this driving tour with him after that. Frank Harris has no feelings... It is the secret of his success, uh, just as the fact that he thinks that other people have none either is the secret of the failure that lies in wait for him somewhere along the way of life. People like him give me a sense of nausea. I loathe the promise makers. The Frank Harrises of life are a dreadful type. I hope to see no more of them. My dear Reggie, I write to tell you that I am to be transferred to Pentonville Prison tomorrow evening and shall be released from there. One, get my things. Two, fix on a hotel, engage a carriage, have my rooms ready. Three, meet me at Pentonville. Four, come away with me to Dieppe. I shall travel under the name of Melmoth. Sebastian Melmoth.
to Paris, city of art. How you frighten me. Dying in Paris is really a very difficult and expensive luxury for a foreigner. Garçon, garçon. Ah, Maurice. Maurice. Charmant. Merci, Monsieur Melmotte. Absent, poor cher ami. Oh, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. How are you, you old bugger? Frank. Frank Harris. How on earth did you... I'm on my way to my hotel in Monte Carlo. Robbie told me that you're at the Hotel d'Alsace. I called and was told that it was more than likely I should find you either at Foyot's or Durand's. Yes, Frank. Here I am, dying above my meat. I'm glad I've tracked you down, Oscar. To be blunt, your behavior has hurt me. I visited you in prison, arranged a driving tour for you on your release, sent you money. In return, I've received evasive answers about the tour and thanks, which, to put it mildly, were not exactly elaborate in expression. Frank, Frank, I have told you that I am grateful to you for your kindness. But I can't say more than that I am grateful... I no longer make roulades about the deep things I feel. Prison has taught me that, at least. When I tell you that I am grateful, I speak directly. If that does not content you, then you do not know how sincerity of feeling expresses itself. But the tour, Oscar. I really thought that was something you would enjoy. The constant change of scenery and my company. Damn it! Yes, my company. Had I gone on a driving tour with you, Frank, I would have certainly broken off the trip on the third day. You must realize what two years of solitary confinement is. What two years of absolute silence has meant to me. You are a man of dominant personality. To survive you, one must have a strong brain, an assertive ego, and a dynamic character. At your luncheon parties of the old days, the remains of the guests were taken away with the debris of the feast. I often found myself the only survivor. You should thank me sincerely for having saved you from an experience that each of us would have always regretted. <laughs> I like you, Oscar. I really like you. You take the wind out of my sails, but by God's great fist, I like you. <laughs> Friends? Friends. You always said you enjoyed feasting with panthers. Garçon, absinthe pour mon ami. Et pour vous, monsieur? Whiskey. How is Paris suiting you, Oscar? Oh, no, 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 no. Sebastian Melmoth. Oh. Paris, dear Frank, is quite awful. There is no one here. Even the criminal classes have gone to the seaside. The only languages one hears are German and American and the gendarmes yawn and regret their enforced idleness. Giving wrong directions to English tourists is the only thing that consoles them. Merci. But enough of Paris, Frank. Tell me about London. Well, I've sold Saturday Review to Lord Hardwick and his cronies for £50,000, and my interests now are mainly in Monte Carlo. I've been ordering up Rodin's bronzes for exhibition in a London gallery. He really is damnably extortionate, Oscar. He's demanding a hundred thousand francs for his bronze Apollo. I would say two hundred and fifty pounds or six thousand francs is plenty. After all, 
The exhibition will make him better known to the public, both there and in America. I really cannot understand... The theatre, Frank. Tell me about the theatre. I long for all the gossip. <laughs> of course you do. Beerbone Tree has just presented a, a Midsummer Night's Dream with real rabbits. On the first night, they nibbled away all the stage grass. <laughs> I hope it won't be a long run for his sake. He could end up with a cast of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear tree, charming fellow, and so clever. He models himself on me, you know. Mrs. Patrick Campbell has made one demand too many on Forbes Robertson. He's been advised by his doctors to take a long rest cure abroad. Oh, Mrs. Pat, there is no peace with her, no quiet moment. It is either heaven or hell, ecstasy or despair. She's disturbing, possessive and impossible. Uh, she told me once that I could do whatever I liked, as long as it wasn't in the street and it didn't frighten the horses. Yes, Oscar, I agree. She can be an impossible woman. Of course. But what an actress. She's always made a deep impression on me. I believe she's going into management on her own. Irving still drags the bells around the provinces, and poor Alexander hit rock bottom with the triumph of the Philistines. The triumph of the Philistines? How appropriate. I was uh, sitting by the roadside on the way to Cannes. I'd taken out a Virgil with me and had begun reading it. As I sat there reading, I happened to raise my eyes, and who should I see but George Alexander? George Alexander on a bicycle. Naturally, I got up delighted to see him and went towards him, but he turned his head aside and pedalled past, deliberately. He meant to cut me. Of course, I know that just before my trial in London he took my name off the bill of my comedy, although he went on playing it. Think of Alexander, who made all his money out of my works, cutting me. George Alexander. It's too ignoble. Oh, wouldn't you be angry, Frank? I've always wondered why you gave Alexander the importance of being earnest. Surely you didn't think him an actor. Oh, no, no. Alexander doesn't act on the stage. He behaves. But what a businessman... In the old days, he made a fortune out of my plays. We both profited, but mine was the artistic profit. Reggie and Robbie Ross came to visit me in Roehampton last week. They'll be coming to Paris to see you very soon. They remain the most devoted of your friends. Yes, friendship is far more tragic than love. It lasts longer. Ozzy? Lord Alfred Douglas is occupied with his racehorses. He invited me to Chantilly a few weeks ago, where he's training them. He's imported English stable lads, jockeys and trainers. Says the French are not worth their salt. It was droll, a complete English colony in France. I think his inheritance has gone to his head. I imagine he has sent you some money. He has, Frank, a paltry hundred pounds a year. All he could afford, I dare say, after paying the stable boys. I told him that all the jewels of Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, could not balance the moral debt he owes me. Tell me for our friendship's sake, is he wrong or am I wrong? Of course, he seems to me to be wrong, utterly wrong. 
But you know his temper is insane. If he even praises himself as he did to me, he gets into a rage in order to do it. And perhaps unwittingly you annoyed him by the way you asked. If you had appealed to his generosity and vainglory, you would have probably got more than by appealing to his sense of justice and right. He doesn't have much moral sense. Oh, Frank, I put it to him as well as I could, quite quietly and gently. I talked of our old affection, of the good and evil days we'd passed together. You know I could never be harsh with him, never. There never was, there never was in the world such a betrayal. Do you remember once telling me that the only flaw you could find in the perfect symbolism of the gospel story was that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, the foreigner from Kerioth, and he should have been betrayed by John, the beloved disciple, for it is only those we love who can betray us. Frank, how true, how tragically true that is. It is those we love who betray us with a kiss. I wish that you would speak to him, Frank, and show him how unjust and unkind he is to me. I cannot do that, Oscar. I do not know all the relations between you and the myriad bands that unite you. I should only do more harm than good. Please, Frank. Please. He's coming over to La Reserve for a few days at Ez. Maybe I could find a way to broach the subject. There are beautiful views on both sides of the hotel. It will be halfway house for the rich tourists travelling between Nice and Monte Carlo. I've had a, a tank cut out of the rock, and with the sea washing in, I can retain a constant supply, a reserve of fresh fish. The guests walk down a slope from the road, picking their own oranges on the way, and are able to select their own fish to be served to them at dinner. It's costing me a fortune, Oscar, a fortune. My accountant, Bell, tells me that another £14,000 will be needed to complete it. What with the Palace Hotel in Monte Carlo, you can imagine how my time is taken up. It doesn't require much imagination, Frank. The whole world knows of your orgies at the Palace Hotel. My girls are my delight, Oscar. And everyone of note, including the Prince of Monaco, come to admire them and indulge in a multitude of pleasures. These girls will do anything for the money and privilege of mixing with nobility. I find their ambition and greed most exciting. Some of them are barely fourteen, and not even my friend Rhoda would improve on their figures. They are my nymphs. They strip for me, a dozen or more, and I give them prizes, perhaps a hundred francs or so, and I have seduced them all in an evening. We have a new game for the guests. A young girl, wearing the flimsiest clothing, turns the handle of a gramophone. Four or five couples dance to the music, and whenever the girl chooses to stop, both men and girls have to remove one item of clothing and change partners. Soon there is very little clothing to remove, and all permutations of partners have been exhausted. This little game is helped enormously by a very special drink concocted by Cesare, my maitre d'hôtel, and the organ of men in stiff India rubber. 
I'm always devising new games, some extremely sophisticated and some entirely the opposite. My guests are never disappointed. You must come down to Monte Carlo, Oscar. If you do not wish to stay at the Palace Hotel, then at least allow me to entertain you at La Reserve. Come when Bosey is there. Perhaps your presence will encourage him to stay longer. What would you, Frank? Whatever begins must end. There are too many English there. For only blood can wipe out blood, and only tears can heal. Here you are, being offered the sunshine, the blue skies, and the wine-tinted Mediterranean. The wine-tinted Mediterranean? That is really rather good, Frank. We shall stop in the hotel, passing through groves of flowers and fruit trees. You walk from the hotel over a carpet of pine needles, and when you get into the open, violets and anemones bloom about your feet and the scent of rosemary and myrtle will be in your nostrils. What? Instead of singing for joy, the bird droops his feathers and hangs his head as if he had the pip. Oh, don't, don't. You don't know, Frank, what a great romantic passion is. Is that what you are suffering from? Yes, a great romantic passion. Good God! Who has inspired you to this new devotion? Don't make fun of me, Frank. Um, Maurice of the Garçon over there. No, no, don't look so obviously. He's watching us. I've asked him to have a drink with me later. He replied in his quaint French way, Ce n'est pas de refuse. He used to be in the army. He's told me all about his mother, Frank. Yes, his mother. I found out that the thing he most desires in the world is a bicycle. He talked of a nickel-plated handlebar and chains. Oh, il a le profil de Bonaparte. God's fist, a waiter, a nickel-plated bicycle and a great romantic passion... The nickel-plated bicycle to me seems irresistibly comic. Frank, I cannot talk to you if you laugh. I am quite serious. I don't believe you know what a great romantic passion is. I am going to convince you that you don't know the meaning of it. Fire away. I'm here to be convinced. But don't think you'll teach me that romance is possible except with the opposite sex. Don't you talk to me of the opposite sex, Frank. First of all, in beauty, there is no comparison between a boy and a girl. Think of the enormous fat hips that every sculptor has to tone down and make lighter, and the great udder breasts which the artist has to make small and round and firm. And then picture the exquisite slim lines of a boy's figure. No one who loves beauty can hesitate for a moment. The Greeks knew that. They understood that there is no comparison. You're going too far. The Venus de Milo is as fine as any Apollo in sheer beauty. The flowing curves appeal to me more than your weedy lines. Perhaps they do, Frank, but you must see that the boy is far more beautiful. It is your sex instinct which prevents you worshipping the higher form of beauty. Height and length of limb give distinction. Women are squat. You must admit that the boy's figure is more beautiful. The appeal it makes far higher, more spiritual. Six of one and half a dozen of the other. 
You'll sculpt to news it's just as hard to find an ideal boy's figure as an ideal girl's. And if he has to modify the most perfect girl's figure, he has to modify the most perfect boy's figure as well. If he refines the girl's breasts and hips, he has to pad the boy's ribs and tone down the great knee bones and the unlovely large ankles. As far as your great romantic passion, I think I can understand the charm of such a companionship, but only from the young boy's point of view, not from yours. I can understand how you've opened up to him a new heaven and a new earth, but what has he given you? Nothing. On the other hand, any finely gifted girl would have given you something. If you had really touched her heart, you would have found in her some instinctive tenderness, some proof of unselfish, exquisite devotion that would have made your eyes prickle with a, a sense of inferiority. The girl is different from the man in all ways. You have as much to learn from her as she has from you, and neither of you can come to ideal growth in any other way. You are both half-parts of humanity, natural complements, and in need of each other. You have put it very cunningly, Frank, as I expected you would. But you must admit that with the boy, at any rate, you have no jealousy, no mean envying, no silly inanities. There it is, Frank. Some of us hate cats. I can give my reasons for my dislike, which to me are conclusive. <laughs> my reasons are conclusive as well, Oscar. Although I must confess that had Shakespeare made advances towards me, I'd have been forced to submit. Your little waiter with his nickel-plated bicycle only makes me grin. You are unpardonable, unpardonable. And in your soul, you know, the weight of argument is on my side. In your soul, you must know it. If you love beauty as intensely as I do, you would feel as I feel. It is beauty which gives me joy, makes me drunk as with wine, blind with insatiable desire. Well, we shall continue to fulfill our own desires in our own ways in spite of a world which dares to censor love, both yours and mine. I've always been of the opinion that one should never listen. To listen is a sign of indifference to one's hearers. Why aren't you writing, Oscar? Oh, Frank, I cannot. How can you imagine I can find inspiration in my horrid little rooms in the Hotel d'Alsace? I could do nothing in such miserable poverty. Shakespeare lost love and friendship, hope and health to boot. Everything. And yet forced himself to write The Tempest. Why can't you emulate him? Everything is harder than you think. Nonsense. Your punishment has made your name known in every country in the world. A play of yours would sell like hotcakes. Frank, when I take up my pen, all the past comes back. I cannot bear the thoughts, regrets and remorse. I, I come face to face with my own soul. The Oscar of four years ago with his glorious, easy triumphs comes up before me and I, I cannot stand the contrast. My eyes burn with tears. If you care for me, Frank, you will not ask me to write. You haven't suffered more than Dante suffered in exile and poverty. Yet you know if he had suffered ten times as much, he would have written it all down. Tears indeed. 
The fire in his eyes would have dried his tears. Do you know what the London press is saying about you? That you are finished. That the world will hear no more of you. I was forced to cut this out of the Telegraph last week. It was written by Courtney. I want you to hear it. He writes, As long as a spirit of revolt was felt in Oscar Wilde, so long was left the fire of creative genius. When the spirit of revolt died, the flame began to subside with spasmodic flickers till its ultimate extinction. To the British public, you're dead. Begin a play, Oscar, and then the Alexanders of the world will go on their knees to you again. Pull yourself out of the mud. You're 40 years of age. Get to work. Write a play, and not the Alexanders alone, but all the people who really count, the best of all countries, will give you another chance. Talking with you, Frank, is like playing rugby football. I never did play rugby football, you know, but talking with you is, I imagine, very much like playing rugby, where you end up by being kicked through your own goal. <laughs> Begin to work, and you'll be borne up on all hands. No one sinks to the dregs but by his own weight. If you don't bear fruit, why should men care for you? Write, Oscar, write. Perhaps I shall, Frank, perhaps I shall. I am thinking of some poetry. A ballad of a fisher boy, a sort of companion to the ballad of Reading Jail, in which I sing of liberty instead of prison, joy instead of sorrow, a kiss instead of execution. Merci, Maurice. The curves of his mouth are a source of endless wonder to me. Out of such a mouth I would drink Lethe in this world, and in the next Ambrosia. A mere frivolity, Oscar. A play will bring in the money. You could live here like a prince, and then you'll be able to afford the luxury of writing poetry and all the other little indulgences. I remember vaguely an interesting plot for a play which you once related to me. What were you going to call it now? Love is Law, wasn't it? Oh, oh yes, Frank, yes. No, 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 I, I think Constance. Constance, the story of a good woman would be a better title. Yes, it is in my mind, Frank. Imagine. A roué of 45 who is married, incorrigible, of course, Frank, a great noble, and who gets the person he is in love with... Uh, and her husband to come and stay with him in the country. One evening, his wife, Constance, who has gone upstairs to lie down with a headache, is behind a screen in a room, half asleep. She is awakened by her husband's courting. She cannot move. She is bound, breathless, to her couch. She hears everything. Then, Frank... The mistress's husband comes to the door and finds it locked, and knowing that his wife is inside with the host, beats upon the door and will have entrance. And while the guilty ones whisper together, the woman blaming the man, the man trying to think of some excuse, some way out of the net, Constance gets up very quietly, turns on the lights while the two cowards stare at her with wild surmise. She passes to the door and opens it. The husband rushes in to find Constance as well as the host and his own wife. Oh, I think it is a great scene, Frank. A great stage picture. It is a great scene. 
Garçon, encore d'absence. Oh, Maurice, mon cher ami. Ah, non, monsieur, non. You know, when you described the scenario to me, it was strange. But all the characters suddenly became alive to me. I'm sure that I could write the second, third and fourth acts very quickly. Could you write the first act of this play, Oscar? You reviled me, Frank. Shamed me. He's broken me, the man I loved. He put himself in the balance against me. He told me I was not a poet, Frank, not a true poet, and that he was. Alfred Douglas, greater than Oscar Wilde. I've ruined myself for someone who cares nothing, who puts a little money, a paltry hundred a year before me. It is as if I were choked with mud. Write the first act of the play. I will get the play on in London, and the profits will make Bose's hundred a year an issue of no consequence. Look! I'll buy this scenario of yours. I will give you fifty pounds now, a quarter of the profits in the play, and five hundred pounds of shares in La Reserve. Just assign the full rights of the plot and the scenario for me to do with as I choose. Money cures most ailments, Oscar. <laughs> Money cures! Au revoir, Oscar. Tomorrow I'll return with all the, the legal papers and contracts to sign. Your latest gilded youth can be the witness, eh, Maurice? Your immediate future is secure. Money cures. In your world, perhaps, Frank. Oscar? Oscar, everything is ready now for supper. Will you be long? I'm coming, my dear Maurice. I'm coming, my dear boy. Oh, this room. The wallpaper. Such a deafening shade of magenta. Ah. The cloud green absinthe. The vice that's never satisfied. You know, Oscar, that the doctor has warned you of the dangers to your health if you go on drinking like this. Dear kind, silly Dr. Tucker. It's three weeks since they operated on my ear and still no relief. Still the pain, the giddiness, the incessant bleeding. My, my throat is like a lime kiln, my brain a furnace, my nerves a hive of angry adders. Yet still he will not prescribe morphine. My absinthe is all I have to deaden the pain. And your care and attention, you dear sweet boy. One should die as if one had never lived. Oh, I really think it is the wallpaper that's killing me. It is so insistent. One of us will have to go. <laughs> If only money were not such a pressing problem, we could escape together. I'd take you to Italy, to Ravenna, to Palermo, where the orange groves are like golden lamps hung in a green night. But at every turn, bills, bills, to the chemist, to the doctor, I'm almost literally without a penny, Maurice. I'm just 
torturing myself with apprehension, getting myself into a fever, trying to raise small sums of money, not knowing what is to become of us. Time will heal, Oscar. You must relax and learn how to be an invalid. I am here to nurse you, and when you are a little stronger, perhaps you will be able to work on the play you are to write with Monsieur Harris. What has my play to do with Frank Harris? But I thought... It is true. I have sold a scenario to Frank Harris. A mere plot that any hack could have contrived. What Frank Harris has bought from me is nothing more or less than the screen scene from School for Scandal. <laughs> that is not the play I have burning so brightly in my imagination. Frank's play, if ever he finds time to write it, will be filled with characters who will talk on the stage exactly as they would off it. They will have neither aspirations nor aspirates. They will present the gait, manner, costume and accent of real people. They would pass unnoticed in a third-class railway carriage. As a method, realism is a complete failure. All our writers seem to be tainted with this modern vice. Even Robert Louis Stevenson. He robs his stories of reality by making them too real. In literature, we require distinction, charm, beauty and imaginative power. Art finds her own perfection within and not outside herself. She makes and unmakes many worlds and can draw the moon from the heavens with a scarlet thread. She can make a miracle at her will. At her word, the frost lays its silver finger on the burning month of June. Life imitates art. Life is the mirror and art the reality. Oscar! Frank. Oh, you always arrive unexpectedly, like a survivor from some extraordinary comic accident. <laughs> well, well, a boy got his bicycle, eh? Allons, comment va la bicyclette, eh? Frank, allow me to introduce you. Maurice, uh, Monsieur Frank Harris. Monsieur? Oscar, my friend here, is a... Beautiful little darling whore, who doesn't speak a word of English. I would like you to meet Isabel. Voici mon ami, Sébastien. Sébastien Melmoth, Isabel. Mademoiselle, enchantée. Isabel, mon petit chou, asseyez-vous. <laughs> The play is the thing, and I shall speak the speech trippingly on the tongue. Great news, Oscar, great news. Mr. and Mrs. Daventry opened at the Royalty Theatre last week. It's a great success. Constance, your story of a good woman. Mrs. Pat in the title role is magnificent, magnificent. The press, of course, has been, let us say, controversial. But that is all to the good. Max Beerbohm says I am to be congratulated on a perfect essay in psychology, that I am to be put very far above the level of ordinary dramatists. The Prince of Wales was delighted with it. He almost fell out of his box onto the stage. Mrs. Pat is sensational, as Mrs. Daventry, sensational. 
The Sunday special says, The first sling of Mr. Harris is a bold thing, and not a bad one either. It cannot please the antagonist of all serious thought in the theatre. In other words, Oscar, the naked sincerity, the realism of my Mr. and Mrs. Daventry cannot but incur their displeasure. They are flocking to the theatre to see this new woman that I have created, turning their silly conventional morals upside down. I have shown them that the illegitimate relationship can prove stronger than the sanctified institution of the marriage shackles. People are beginning to see that no single mistake, not even marriage, should be allowed to ruin a whole life. We have a sort of second chance now, and most of us need it. To Mr and Mrs Daventry. Your Mr and Mrs Daventry will be a rank failure for the very simple reason that plays cannot be written by amateurs. Plays require knowledge of the stage. It is quite absurd that you, who hardly ever go to the theatre, should think yourself capable of writing a successful play. Now, I do not doubt that your nagpie mind has managed to glean something of the art of the dramatist, which I, for one, have expounded to you. You do indeed have a retentive memory. On the subject of Shakespeare, you are a walking encyclopedia, but that, and that alone, is all you will ever be, a walking encyclopedia. Your mind, Frank, your mind is devoid of imagination, compassion, and subtlety. You are an opportunist with an eye on the main chance. You have, as you think, bought my play. In fact, what you bought is a mere shadow of a play. Its colour, the flesh on the bones of the skeletons that rattle in your mind as characters can only be provided by me. It is an immutable fact that were you to live a thousand years in art and imagination, your innate mediocrity would remain forever constant. I came here to help you, to give you money. Why, I don't know. Our agreement was that you write the first act of the play, and you didn't do it. You couldn't do it. And I know why. Why didn't you tell me you had sold the scenario to others before me? I have been approached by Alexander. Alexander, of all people. Smithers, Tree, Sedger, Adorian, all demanding sums of money which they have paid to you, each of them believing that they had the sole rights to it. God knows how many more I shall have to pay off. But I... I felt sorry for you. It was obvious to me that you were incapable of writing this play for yourself. You are finished. You know it, I know it, the whole world knows it. Look at you. You're decaying by the second. If you smile, you have to cover your mouth to hide your rotting teeth. Why do you think Bosey hasn't seen you? Because you disgust him. Yes, I think it's time you heard what Bosey said to me about you, Chantilly. He said you disgusted him, that you were fat and bloated, always demanding money, 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 like a daughter of the horse leech, like an old fat prostitute. Oh yes, Oscar, it's true. He gloated over the words, an old fat prostitute. 
I have success, money. I am respected by society. All you have left is your nickel-plated boyfriend. Here. This may help you keep him for a few more days. Pederast. As one sees most fearful things in the crystal of a dream, more shall When the last trumpet sounds, and you and I are couched in our purple and porphyry tombs, I shall lean towards you. I shall whisper the last trumpet. But Bose, I shall add, Bose, dear boy, let us pretend we do not hear it. Wild's tomb in Paris now attracts thousands of devoted admirers. Wild, the undisputed icon of gay life. Lord Alfred Douglas retired into private life, a litigious, bitter minor poet. Frank Harris continued to court controversy, and his scandalous autobiography, My Life and Loves, became a surprise bestseller, a fat, salacious paperback, the icon of heterosexual pornography. The play, Mr and Mrs Daventry, played successfully until the death of Queen Victoria closed all West End theatres. It has seldom, if ever, been revived. Oh, and of the later life of Maurice, we know nothing. You have been listening to The Ballad of C33 from an original idea by Knight Mantell, compiled from original sources by Francis Sargent and Knight Mantell, produced by Emily Wright, editing and post-production by Lester Barry, with original music composed and performed by Francesco Quadraru Op Olo. With Knight Mantel as Oscar Wilde, Gregory Cox as Frank Harris, and David Furlong as Morris. The Ballad of C33 was recorded at Quinn Studios and engineered by Matt Walters for the Wireless Theatre Company. Visit www.wirelesstheatrecompany.co.uk for more free audio downloads. 